0: So here's the question, how can e-commerce leaders make sure that they are producing a great product, providing a world-class customer experience, responsibly managing their finances, and still reserve time, energy, and resources for marketing their products? My name is James Sowers, and you're listening to the e-commerce insight show, the podcast that gives you specific, actionable advice for growing your e-commerce business. Every Monday, you'll get a conversion rate optimization tactic that you can implement quickly to make your business 1% better every single week. Every Thursday, we sit down with industry experts to go deep on a specific aspect of running a successful e-commerce business. It's the perfect blend of learning and application, which means that you maximize the value of every single minute you spend with us. We're just as committed to growing your business as you are. So if you're looking for a partner to help you crush your revenue goals, you've come to the right place. Roll up your sleeves and grab a notepad because it's time to get to work. Well, Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really excited to have you, and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us here for a little bit to talk about all things CartHook and post-purchase offers and a little exciting development on your front with Shopify and a bunch of other stuff. So I know everybody's just itching to hear what you have to say today, but maybe let's just start with maybe a two or three sentence overview of who you are, what you do, and what you guys are doing over there at CartHook.
1: Sounds good. And James, thanks very much for having me on, for you and the good. Yes, I am excited to talk about a lot of these developments Very briefly, what Carthook does is allows Shopify merchants to make post-purchase offers. And what that means is the ability to make an offer after the checkout is completed and before the thank you page is presented. So in between those, and that is a new space for merchants to optimize. And that's what we've been focused on. And I'm happy to talk about what we, the way we used to do it and the way we're about to start doing it
0: now alongside Shopify. Our listeners are primarily e-commerce founders and senior leaders at e-commerce brands. And so that's why this is important to them. And this is usually the point in the show where I say, hey, what's a project or a feature or a campaign you're really excited to work on? And i let you kind of wonder, but I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. So why don't we talk about like the big news around Shopify and just use that as kind of the icebreaker to kick things
1: off? Sure. So requires a bit of context. So if we take a few steps back, we, we saw what was happening in the digital marketing space that was starting to be ushered into the physical product space through ClickFunnels. So ClickFunnels came out with a checkout system that allowed digital marketers to do post-purchase offers and landing pages. And that platform took off like crazy. And a lot of the sellers there were selling physical products. And the issue with that is that ClickFunnels was not made to sell physical products. It doesn't have the concepts of inventory and fulfillment and shipping built in natively. And so as marketers started to sell physical products there at any type of scale, even 100 products a day, it turned into a huge mess for them of exporting Excel spreadsheets and CSV. And very quickly, those sellers started migrating over to Shopify, which has a far better system for selling physical products. When they made that move, they lost the ability to do a lot of things that they were able to do in ClickFunnels, most prominently the ability to sell post-purchase offers. And so we saw that opportunity and wanted to bring that functionality into Shopify and saw it as our job to really take that from the digital marketing world and bring it toward the direct-to-consumer world where brands are much more focused on the relationship with their shoppers as opposed to just purely transactional and basically maximizing AOV. So we saw maximizing AOV is obviously important, but doing it in such a way where you treated the shopper properly so that your brand value was maintained. So that's, that's where we started.
0: Well, to give the, the listeners like a concrete example, if they're not familiar with ClickFunnels, like I think it was pretty much designed for digital products, right? Like info products like webinars or eBooks or maybe coaching services or whatever. So somebody would have a funnel where you would buy, let's say you bought their online course, then during checkout, they would say, hey, do you want to add a copy of my eBook for nine bucks? And that is the post-purchase offer that happened. But where that broke down was people who were trying to sell physical goods using the ClickFunnels kind of infrastructure. And that's where the opportunity for hook came. Is that right?
1: That's right. And so that's where we started. And we wanted to bring post-purchase upsells to Shopify. The, the difficulty in that was that we couldn't do it with the Shopify checkout. So in order to accomplish post-purchase upsells, we had to do the actual checkout ourselves, the actual payment processing, because that's what provides you with the payment token from the checkout page that can be reused on the post-purchase upsells to make it truly one-click so that the shopper didn't have to re-enter any of their payment info, which made it a true one-click upsell, which is why the conversion rate was so good. And so we really, without knowing what we were getting into, all of a sudden our product turned into a checkout product, which was a monster to maintain. We wanted to accomplish this upsell functionality, but had to do the entire checkout process ourselves. and, And that's that's kind of where everything started for us, turned out to be a really difficult product to get right. Took us a good year to get right. But once we did, the ROI is so good for merchants that our product took off and our checkout you know, went to all the way up to $80 million a month in GMV. And that's kind of where we were a few months ago. And then from here, we can get into the, the deal with Shopify.
0: Yeah, sure. So I guess the whole, if I'm understanding correctly, the reason you guys had to be a standalone product was a limitation of the API and creating that token so that you could even manipulate like that immediate post-purchase screen that the, the customer sees. And so that's why you didn't build a Shopify app from the start, right? Because it just, the, the, the API had some limitations around what, how flexible you
1: could be and what you could offer your merchants. Is that accurate? Well, we did, we did build a private Shopify app, but you're right in that we couldn't build an app for the app store because if you think about our platform it was it was asking merchants to process through our checkout instead of shopify's checkout so it is very understandable from shopify's point of view not to promote that because their business is you know predominantly a checkout and a payment processing service wrapped into the the platform and so we we had we had a difficult balance where we were serving a pretty niche audience of large merchants and it was a difficult thing to accomplish. So we charged a lot of money and it just was not very accessible to most merchants. It was it made a lot of sense for merchants that were making a lot of money and spending a lot on ads and the increase in the average order value and the resulting return on ad spend improvement basically made it so that it didn't even really matter how much they paid us. They were making so much more anyway that we had this, it was much more of a partnership and a service than what people traditionally think of as a SaaS. SaaS people think of like, don't talk to me. Let me just sign up. I'll use your product. I'll pay you every month. That's it. Our relationship was very different. We had an application process and demos and built up a relationship. And we did it that way for, for a long time.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't like some of these tools you might see out there where it's like it helps you schedule your Instagram posts because Instagram doesn't natively support that. Well, you are 100% reliant on Instagram as the platform as your lifeblood. If they decide to build your feature into their tool, you're done for. And so what you're describing to me is not quite the same like you guys had a relationship up front. You had some demos, you know, from the start they knew that the checkout was a critical function for them to maintain control over. And you knew that like, Hey, we have to tread lightly a little bit here because we're trying to impact that in some way. And they're right to be risk averse or they're right to have concern around like what we're doing over here. So the most recent development is that relationship, I guess, for lack of a better term, got a little more intimate, right? Like you guys are working more closely together. So maybe describe the change from the immediate past to where you're at today.
1: So we're right in the middle of that transition, which is super, super exciting for us. So, a few months ago, Shopify came to us and effectively said, we want to allow merchants to do this, but we want them to do it in such a way that is consistent with the rest of the Shopify platform. Right? One of the amazing things that Shopify has done is provided an unbelievably reliable checkout and payment system for e-commerce. We, If, if you venture off Shopify from time to time and buy things elsewhere, you immediately encounter how much more difficult it is to check out than on a Shopify store. It's it's really, it's it's a big difference. I remember I tried to buy one of those like Elgato key lights, you know, to like make my Zoom calls better. I could not buy this thing. I could not give this company my money. I tried repeatedly every few days, They would go out of stock, then I would buy it. It would tell me it was a successful transaction, but would send me back to the form to fill out my credit card info. And you 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 forget how big of a feat that was that Shopify accomplished. And so they want that for everyone on their platform. And so what they did is came to us and said, let's work together to make this functionality of post-purchase offers possible, but through the Shopify checkout. And so we did a deal. We we basically said, okay, Carthook is gonna stop taking on new customers for their checkout product. And instead Shopify will build out the API functionality that allows us to accomplish post-purchase offers inside the native Shopify checkout. And where this conversation is right now between you and I is we are gearing up to launch that version of our product in a few weeks, at the end of this month, at the end of October, just in time for Black Friday. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations.
0: Cause that's a huge step forward. And, you know, e-commerce in general has seen a large uptick in the last few months with everything going on. And it's kind of like, you guys are latched onto a rocket ship and you just got to try to hold on. Right. is kind of how it feels to me, but I guess you got to this point where it was like, Hey, Shopify is either going to build this themselves. They're going to try to acquire you guys, or, or, you know, maybe there's an option C that I'm not thinking of, but like, this seems like the best possible outcome, I guess. And, and it's, t- it, I want to be clear. It's not an acquisition.
1: It's not a merger. It's
0: more like a partnership or
1: No. And and we're not the only ones that are going to be able to do this. There will be a handful of others. It's just that because of the sensitive nature of the functionality, right, having to do with the checkout and the payment token, Shopify rightfully has to keep this relatively closed, make sure it's fully buttoned up before they open up the API to others. So we're really just getting in there early. And from the past few years of what we've done at cardhook we have a lot of expertise so we are sharing a lot of that expertise with shopify around how things should be done and why so it's just yeah it's just really exciting to be very very early on it and yeah like you said right they, they could have they could have killed us could have acquired us it could have been messier and i think this is this is the best possible outcome and we have a lot to be proud of in that we we did accomplish what we wanted to which is to bring this concept of post-purchase offers upward toward the direct-to-consumer market. So, right, we started off with just the drop shipping crowd, and there's nothing wrong with drop shipping. It's just that the relationship of a drop shipping store usually to its shoppers isn't nearly as intimate and as important as it is to a direct-to-consumer company. It's more transactional than relational, and we wanted to move up that arc from transactional to relationship based. And that's that we've been able to do to the point where Shopify effectively agreed. Okay, this is important functionality. People want it. Let's 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 make it possible the right way.
0: I know that you are thoughtful and intentional about the moves that you make. So I imagine there's not just a benefit to carthook here. There's also a benefit to your merchants. And I do know that the merchants that you're already serving, it sounds I've heard you say you're going to continue to support them, right? So carthook in its immediate past version, does not disappear, at least not right away. But you're not accepting new customers right now, I don't think, until this new closer integration with Shopify is rolled out. And so I guess there are two parts to that question. One, making sure I get all those details right before somebody hears this and and gets it wrong. And two, if you think about this opportunity, or if you flash back to when you were considering it, what do you see as the upside, not just for cart hook, but also for the merchants that you serve now and the ones you'll continue to serve in the future?
1: Yes. So you're right that our legacy software will continue to run and be maintained. Truth is, we're, we're adding some features into it that, that have been in the pipeline for a while. So it'll continue to move forward, and the people that are on it will be able to stay on it. And a lot of those merchants really built their businesses around our product because it's central. It is the checkout. It's where the integrations happen. It's uh, It right, involves payment processing, involves strategy, involves ad creative... Uh, All of it becomes very central to a lot of those businesses. So they'll be able to continue functioning like normal. At the same time, this new product, right? This is one of those scenarios, right? Bill Gates talks about creating an enormous amount of value and capturing a small fraction of it. It it feels analogous to our situation because our banging up against the wall for four years and finally breaking through. And now the entire Shopify platform is going to have access to this through our app and our competitors' apps. The amount of value generated is going to be astronomical. And we are going to capture a very small fraction of it, which is, that's satisfying. That's that's kind of how it should be. If you look at just our network, we have processed $1.5 billion through our checkout and 165 million of that—I think it's 175 million now—came from post-purchase offers. So it's, it is a 11, what is it, almost 12% increase in revenue overall, in aggregate through the entire network. Which means some people had a lot more, and some people had less. If you if you think about that at Shopify scale, it is just an unbelievable amount of value. And we are just going to be happy to capture our portion of it, and so are the other products, and even better, the merchants and then the shoppers also and Shopify itself. So it feels like one of those like Milton Friedman, like speeches of like, yes, the pie gets bigger. It's not zero sum. Everybody's gonna win in this.
0: When I'm sure you have case studies, like I know I saw a few that were in the 10 to 15% range of increased average order value purely from the post-purchase offers. I'm sure they go up to 30%, maybe, I don't know, somewhere in there in like the the low double digits, maybe even higher. And so what I'm hearing you say is like the minute we get listed in the app store as a native app supported by Shopify or however it's going to be, maybe it's rolled out as just a new native feature. Like you open that kind of potential up to thousands and thousands of additional merchants because they didn't know about you before. And you're right there in the top of the app store, or you're the only result or one of three results for post-purchase offers, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, the, the fun thing is that when we first started out, when we first looked over at ClickFunnels and tried to understand what was happening there exactly, because we started the company where we did, which was an abandoned cart app, right? So hook, the reason it's called hook is because that makes a lot of sense for an abandoned cart app that sends out emails to abandoned carts, right? That's where, that was the first product in our suite. We have since sunset that product, but the experience of running that product was a huge lesson, Because when we started, at least once a week or so, every few days, we would get a merchant be really upset. Like, this is ridiculous. This is spam. You can't do this. I would never do this. Go to hell. And within two years, we never heard that because it became a best practice. Because it went from, what's this strange thing you're doing? I'm not sure if I want to do it to my customers. To, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Now it's up to me to do it properly. It's just like email. You can be a jerk with email. You can be a jerk with any tool. If you do it the right way, there's a right way and a wrong way and a lot in between. As soon as we saw what was happening in ClickFunnels with post-purchase offers, in my head, I knew it was the same trajectory. It was going to be looked at as this weird thing that people didn't really understand and didn't want to do because they thought it was like wrong for their customers or something because because of the unknown. And as soon as people really understood what it was – then you could do it the right way and then it would be adopted as a best practice because it is straightforward just like abandoned carts. If you don't email any of your abandoned carts, you will make zero money from it. If you email them, 20% will come back and buy and then you will make more revenue and a lot of those shoppers are going to be happy because they either maybe got a free discount or a free shipping offer or something else or were simply reminded. And this is this is the same thing. If you don't offer anything post-purchase, you won't make any money post-purchase. But if you do... Roughly 20% of those customers will buy and you'll make more revenue. You'll have a better average order value, better return on ad spend, and then a lot of your shoppers are gonna be happy for it.
0: And so I think for anybody listening out there who's not already doing this, this should be as obvious as abandoned carts. Like, I think they have gotten to the point where it's like, everybody's doing them. If you're not doing them, then you're just, you're you're messing up. You're, you are being irresponsible in the way that you're running your e-commerce business, right? Because it's like free money if you, if you set it up properly, right? I think this is going to be there very quickly where it's like, if you let somebody who is in the moment buying a product from you get away without offering some kind of complimentary product and not in a spammy way, but in a, a genuinely like mutually beneficial, Hey, you bought X and Y happens to complement that product very well. We offer it. You could add it to your cart right now before your package ever goes out. Like that is going to feel like a no brainer really quickly if it doesn't already to some of these folks. So maybe that's a good transition for us to talk about like why, post-purchase offers were even a problem worth solving for you. Like if you started with abandoned cart, there had to be some divine intervention, some moment of inspiration where you're like, Hey, this is where we need to play the immediate post-purchase, like right there in the checkout flow, as opposed to that email interaction or trying to recapture like people who bought, were going to buy something, but abandoned their, their cart. So like, why is post-purchase offer like something you want to dedicate your professional life to for the foreseeable future?
1: So the the reason goes back like ten years when I ran my own e commerce business, and I, I ran it with my brothers. and I was responsible for conversion. So like one of my brothers was responsible for traffic. I was responsible for conversion, and my younger brother was responsible for post purchase, like everything that happened with customer service and delivery and tracking. So I stared at our website for years and just thought every day, how do I convert more? What do I need to do? What information do I need to convey? How do I improve my about us page? How do I get more trust? What payment options? So all of these things factored in. So my brain was wired toward conversion. And what happens, right? For a shopper that comes in is interested in buying something. Let's say, let's just say, for example, they clicked on an ad, right? A high stakes scenario. They clicked on an ad, which means you've already paid for the traffic. Then you got them to the product page and you got it to the point where they added to the cart. At that point in time, you want to get out of their way. If this person has shown interest, you want to just grease the wheel the whole way and make everything trustworthy and everything smooth and everything that leads to the purchase. And so it is really important to increase your average order value, but if you make additional offers in between the time they put something in the cart and checking out, you are endangering the sale you are adding another buying decision and you're adding additional friction. And so that balance is tricky. You want to increase the average order value. You want them to see more of your products and buy more of it, but you also don't want to get in the way. And Amazon has done this for a long time, right? You may also like, right? You buy a coffee machine. You may also like these filters that work with your coffee machine. Great. The issue is that it adds that buying friction. The way to get around it is to take the offer and put it on the other side of the checkout page. That way the shopper can go in and buy the coffee machine without seeing any additional offers or having to make any additional buying decisions or read new reviews or or get sidetracked in any way. And then after the checkout, because they bought that specific coffee machine, you can then offer them specific products that make sense for them, like the coffee filters that fit that coffee machine. And the sale's already done, And so you as the merchant, you're not adding any additional friction. And then for the shopper, the offer that you're getting is very, very relevant and congruent with what you just bought because this post-purchase offers, you can show different offers based on what's being bought. So if I bought something else, I wouldn't see that same offer. So it's very, very relevant. It's very, very, doesn't add any friction. And then on top of that, it's one click. So it it takes no time and no effort to add it to your cart. And then the other like little wrinkle is because you've already captured that revenue, you actually have the ability to make them a better offer. So you don't have to charge the same amount. You can actually give them a true one-time offer that's like a reward for purchasing with you because you can afford to do that because it's now being bundled into an order together with something else as opposed to the prices that you need to set publicly on the store. And you can have different prices. So it's really a one-time offer. So it's all, all these different factors.
0: And that feels good to both people, right? That feels good to both parties. It's like, I feel good getting the additional value, but they feel good because they get what is effectively like a wholesale rate or like our very best offer that nobody else. There's exclusivity and everything associated with that. So like the endorphins are flown on both sides.
1: Yes, right. The, the, the timing of it can't be underestimated. When you buy something, when you just hit the click the buy button, you are at your most euphoric. You are peak happiness, and that is a good time to make an offer. And if you make that offer in a way that is beneficial to both parties, all of a sudden everyone everyone wins. Yeah, and so that's why
0: this is even a maybe it's not a problem we're solving, but this is why this is an area that's even worth playing in. Right, is because of the upside and kind of the mutual value exchange that can happen across the board. And you are essentially like the facilitator of of that interaction, right? You're giving the merchant the tools to present the offer and you're giving the customer the tools to view the things that, because this can get a little bit spammy real quick if you're not careful about it, right? Like we're not trying to, when people say like, I want to maximize the value of every cart, like don't lose sight that there's a person there. But at the same time, like certain types of products, if you buy one thing, a complimentary or a supplementary product to that can enrich the value of the overall, the original thing that you purchased, right? So there's a place for these things in the market that does truly add value for the customer beyond just like, hey, I increased the total shopping cart value by another 15 bucks or whatever. Like it's not as one-sided as it might present. When you think about your work to date and some of the merchants you've already served in kind of the standalone cart hook world, or the chapter of the Cardhook story where you were a standalone app, what are some of the stories that stand out to you as like somebody who wasn't doing this before, implemented it, maybe six months later, had some really great results. Like I know you got a bunch of case studies on your website, but is there one brand or one team that stands out as somebody who really like knocked it out of the park?
1: A really pivotal moment for the product and for the adoption overall of the concept was when Native Deodorant signed up. That really showed us that a brand of that caliber that cares that much about their brand and the relationship with the shoppers would be into it and could could do it effectively according to their high standards. And so wor- working with them and working with Moyes was hugely helpful. And one of my favorite parts of that story is the creativity that, that came out of it. So at first, it was, okay, what what can we do here that's a win for both sides, that increases the average order value, that makes shoppers happy? So what they came up with was travel size. So if you went out and bought the men's eucalyptus deodorant, after buying it, you would be presented with an offer for the travel size version of the men's eucalyptus deodorant. And everybody bought it. it was, the conversion rate was insane because it was low price, impulse, and beneficial, and a great deal. And it was like, it was a no brainer. So that that was very cool to see. And then to then watch them build that out for their entire suite, and, and work all these different flows into it was great. Then something creative happened on their end, where they said to themselves, okay, this is effectively a new space for us. This is a, my favorite way to think about what we do is we expand the optimization canvas, right? A lot of brands look at, right, the, the good focuses on conversion rate optimization, right? And what you're looking at is the ads and the ad creative and the audiences they're being served to. And then you're looking at email and you're looking at the homepage and the product page and the about e- Everything's on the front end. But then it's assumed that once you get to the checkout, you're done. Your job's done, right? <laughs> you're done. You can't optimize anymore. Right. And we open that up. All of a sudden, it's new canvas to optimize. And that's, that's like really exciting, especially because everybody that touches that canvas is a customer, it's not like ambiguous. It's like they've already given you your money and, and that those are the best people to, to, to talk to and communicate with. So what they did is they looked at that canvas and they said, okay, what else can we do with this? And what they came up with was when they introduced a new line of products, their toothpaste, everybody knew them for their deodorant. Now all of a sudden they introduced toothpaste. How do you show people that you sell toothpaste now? What they did was everyone that bought deodorant, they would offer a free toothpaste in the post-purchase offer. So it actually was not generating new revenue, but it was introducing everybody that was a loyal deodorant customer to a new, a new line of products. So you could see how this, this space can be used for revenue maximization. And all of a sudden, it could be used for discovery as well. So that, that's one of my, fav- my favorite stories to just kind of see what, what's possible. Well, and that's a great story because like, I'm actively
0: trying to not say post-purchase upsells or order bumps or anything. Cause that's the ClickFunnels world that I came from too. Like that's, that's my background as an internet marketer. Like I know it and that's my default, but really it's a post-purchase offer. It's a more it's a broader, more general term. And, you know, maybe that's a good question to ask next is like, I'm curious if you've seen any creative ways that this has been deployed. I mean, I think our listeners probably know cross sells and upsells, like they don't need the difference between those two to explain. But like, I know I've seen an example where somebody will do a post purchase offer for a subscription, like a subscribe and save type of thing, or like, Maybe add a gift for somebody else, like around the gift buying season. It's like, did you just buy this for yourself? Add one for a friend. Or did you buy it for a friend? Add one for yourself. You know, treat yourself because you're doing a good thing. Like maybe I, maybe I took all the good ideas. I, I doubt it. But do you have any other examples of like creative ways this is being applied?
1: Yeah, you, you touched on a lot of them. So, so quantity breaks, right? Get a second one for cheaper, that type of thing, whether it's for yourself or a friend or whatever. I've seen people do mystery, like let's say a sock company. It's like, let's say they sell their socks normally for 18 bucks. So they'll do a, a post-purchase offer for $9 for a mystery sock. Right? And so you know, you don't know what you're going to get. And, and you see people offer this sometimes as like an in-cart upsell. But post-purchase, it works really well. And the space that you mentioned first is my favorite. The subscription interactions are super interesting because let's look at it in a few different ways. First way, going from a single unit to a subscription. So... We all know and assume selling a subscription is harder than selling a one-time unit. It just is, it's a bigger commitment. Now, what happens when you allow someone to purchase a single unit and then make them an offer into subscription is now the the trust barrier, the are you willing to take out your credit card for our relationship, that's already been breached. And now you're making an offer for subscription and maybe you can address some of the common objections. Whether it be price or shipping or something else, you can bundle that into the offer, like subscribe to this product and we'll give you that first one free. So now you just bought something for $30 and now someone's making you an offer to give you that product for free if you subscribe. So that interaction is really interesting going from single unit to subscription and it also works the other way. Usually in a subscription business, there's also these ancillary products that you do want to sell one time. Let's just say you are supply, right, the shaving company, and you want people to get onto the subscription for the razor, but you also happen to have a a bomb, or or a post-shaving cream bomb, or something like that. And that, after someone buys the subscription, it's a perfect time to offer them. Like now you're basically bought into the supply family here. You're going to be shaving with supply moving forward. Maybe use a supply shaving
0: cream as well yeah and we do enough teardowns to know that discovery is not always solved like people don't even know that you have bomb when they buy the razor, right? But if you present the bomb to them after they've already bought the razor, they're like, "Oh, I didn't even know these these folks did this. I didn't know they offered like aftershave care products." And so the fact that it's there in the moment, I already like them. I already spent a little bit of money. If it's an extra few bucks to add on some bomb, I'll give it a try, right? Because I didn't even know it existed before. Despite the fact that you have it in your primary navigation and your footer, and you've got a section on your homepage, like people just miss these things. They're moving fast. They're busy. They're on their phone. Whatever. Like it happens. And this is another touch point because we all know we got to see a message like seven times to actually make a purchase or whatever and so this can be the one of those 7 that actually
1: closes the deal. Yeah, this this happens with companies that have a hero product that they're known for. Right, let's let's continue on with the supply example. They're known for the razor. And like you said, you can have your site set up properly to make sure people can discover it, but if someone hears from a friend about it, goes to the site, sees the razor, goes adds it to the cart, that's that's perfect. That's exactly what you want them to do. Because they're effectively pre-sold before they get to the site through word of mouth or recommendation. In some ways, what you could, the way you can think about it is that type of a company, that type of a product, you normally would leave the discovery of these other ancillary products. You, you would leave that job for email, right? So two weeks later, you send them an email. A month later, you send them an email. This accelerates that interaction and that transaction all the way up immediately to be bundled into the same transaction. Right, so if, if your plan is to sell them a razor and then 30 days later save, sell them the bomb, you could introduce that interaction at the same time, and that can make a huge impact on your business.
0: Yeah, because in their case, I would imagine they probably put a sample like in the box or some kind of direct mailer type of insert in the box. And like, that's where somebody learns about the bomb, but it's already been five to seven days for them to get that package. And then they try it out and then they buy it anyway, but you can accelerate that timeline and bring it all the way up to the point of the original purchase, which is kind of a no brainer in my mind. You know, one thing I want to make sure that we touch on is an an actual feature and like without making it a sales pitch, I mean, the fact of the matter is, we're talking about post purchase offers in general, like in theory, and how valuable they are and an aspect of that that CardHook offers that I saw was personalization. So it's like, I can contextualize the product that's recommended based on the product that they purchased. I mean, it's, it should be fairly obvious why that's important, but maybe some concrete examples, maybe we stick with the supply one or maybe we use something else, but like examples of personalization and how that helps to further maximize like the average order value and the conversion rate and things like that post-purchase.
1: Yeah, that to us, that's that's non-negotiable. You can't just blast someone with a random offer and hope a certain percentage buy it. That's that's a recipe for getting your customers to be mad at you and, and that that's pointless. So- We, this is one of the really exciting things about the new version of the product that works with a Shopify checkout. We used to have a tagging system in the legacy software where you put a tag on your product in the Shopify backend. And when that tag was present a certain set of upsells would be shown. And that was somewhat flexible, but it wasn't great. What we have now is a criteria builder. And so you have much more ability to customize. So you can set something up like if product A and B are in the cart and the value is over $100 and the quantity overall of all the products in the cart is less than five, then show this set of offers. So it gets much more granular and over time, you can optimize that over and over to just make all these offers more and more relevant as you go. So that's that's a critical feature. If you care about your shoppers, which we want to work with brands that do care about their shoppers, you want to make it as congruent and as relevant as possible. You don't want to just throw things out there. That's like sending random emails. It doesn't work.
0: Uh, well maybe one concrete example I have no idea if they're a card hook vendor so I'll just throw that out there but like the guys at 4x 400 are friends of mine and they have a product in their portfolio called slick products and it's all I think it's ATV care. It's like waxes and stuff like that. But I can imagine a scenario where like one of their products cannot be used without a foundational layer of something else. Like you can't use the shine until you have the wax on. So if somebody tries to buy the shine, you might use a post-purchase offer to say like, Hey, this product is not going to work. In fact, it can damage your paint or something like that if you don't also put the wax on. So we strongly recommend you consider buying the wax too. Like maybe that's an example of like personalization where like if they bought anything other than the shine, the wax doesn't necessarily have to get presented, but because they have that, and it's a prerequisite to have a layer of wax down without damaging your vehicle, then you would definitely want to put that in front of them. And it's a genuinely helpful way or time to present that information. So I just wanted to share that as as an example, I guess.
1: That's a perfect example of the, the customer focused mindset
0: this is more out of curiosity, but if somebody wanted to roll their own cart hook, so to speak, like they wanted to DIY this post-purchase, like, is that even possible? Or are there only a handful of approved apps that can even manipulate the checkout function like that? Like, I guess anything's possible through custom code, but I don't know the the technical landscape well enough. Like, can somebody even do this on their own or would they need to buy a tool to do it? I
1: too am not technical, even though I run a software company, that's fine. I don't believe it's possible. Even if you're on Shopify Plus, you have more access to the checkout, but not the payment token in this way. So we we have seen in the past people build out their own custom checkouts. We've seen like really big Shopify stores that did not want to leave Shopify, but wanted some of the benefits of these more open source platforms. Just crack the whole thing open and build their own checkout. But that is like, I think it's like less than 10 merchants on the entire platform. And it is not recommended. And the people that we've seen do it, not really having a great time because it, it's really difficult to do we, we can tell you there's, there's a lot of pain involved in running your own checkout so overall th- this this is not really possible without us and those handful of other app developers that will be available in in the app store okay yeah good to know because like i mean
0: That's usually the default reaction that I hear from a lot of listeners to stuff like this is like, I'll start doing it myself. And when it gets too painful or too expensive, or I can't figure it out, I'll go buy a tool that can help me do it. But that doesn't sound like it's even really a possibility in this scenario, which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's a great place for you to be, but it's a, but as a merchant, you want, it's better for you to work with somebody that's already established and has been doing this for years and like has a direct partnership with Shopify. I mean, I can't think of a better way to go about it, but I could see why somebody might want to test the waters first before committing to, I didn't, I didn't even ask you guys charge like a percentage of revenue volume, or is it going
1: to be a subscription, like a monthly subscription, a flat fee? How, how do you price your product? We have not made that public yet. And so that's, so strategic in nature that it makes sense to hold off until until we launch, but we will make it much more accessible to to merchants. our Our pricing for the legacy software was five hundred dollars a month plus half a percent of all revenue. And so that that's a pretty high starting point. And we're really excited to be able to bring that way down. Because we don't have to do the checkout, we don't have to do the pay, payment processing, we can be much more focused on the on the post purchase offers, and so we'll make the pricing much more accessible and the way we the way we always operate is we want to participate in the upside along with our merchants we want to make it so that when we only succeed when our merchants succeed
0: right yeah, I mean by default most smart software companies want to pay for themselves and then some, right? And a significant amount on top of that. So we are enabling more additional revenue to cover the cost of our monthly subscription or whatever it ends up being, plus some extra. So you're still coming out ahead of
1: the game, so. Cool. Yeah, Yeah, and we still want the math to be a no-brainer. We want people to get ROI that's astronomical. And that's what we did with our previous software and we want to stick with that. And yeah, that worked out for us. We, We don't compete on price. We don't have any issues being more expensive. We just make sure that it's worth it. And in our opinion, this is your checkout. This is not something that you want to go cheap with. And so we just work really hard to have the most premium offering in the market possible. But now with the partnership with Shopify, we can also do that for significantly lower entry points.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a sign of uh, somebody who's confident in their product. Like we charge, what we charge, we know we're worth it. And then some, and it's still a great deal. So um, take it or leave it. And I think that's a strong stance to have. So if we, if we shift, if we put a pin in the post-purchase offer concept, I think everybody gets it. And we shift gears a little bit. Like what is some other e-commerce tech or like an e-commerce trend that's kind of got you excited? Maybe the future, if you want to look ahead, even beyond Q4, cause we'll get to that. Everybody's thinking about it. It's top of mind right now, but like longer term or midterm, like on the horizon, what are you seeing that's kind of exciting in the e-commerce tech space?
1: so i am i'm enamored with what's happening in headless and i'm so curious on where it's going and wh- and what happens because so let's just define it for a second right headless my version of the definition is the separation between front end and back end that's that's from there we can get all types of detail but generally speaking it is the separation between the front end the storefront and the backend API, order management, customer management. And so historically platforms have been built very, very tightly coupled so that the front end, the storefront was really just a visual representation of what was in the database. So all the product pages look the same because you need a page that's considered to be a product page. And from the database, you take the image or images and you put it in the same place. And you take the description and you put it in the same place on the pages, as all the other pages. and. And that, that's changing so rapidly where those two parts, the storefront and the back end, are being torn apart. And what that does, the reason it's happening isn't just because the tech is getting better. It's because merchants want it. And so this is a demand-driven change in the market. These are merchants who acknowledge the importance of the shopper experience. Right? If you look over at Casper Mattress, if you look over at Warby Parker, you look at the, the companies with real resources and the power to do this, they're crafting shopper experiences that are amazing and that are tailored for their brand and their audience. And when you get into the context of a, of a hosted platform that doesn't give you all that flexibility, that's when you start to stretch it and you start to say, well, we, we need more power. We need more flexibility on the front end, especially at the higher end. And so what's happening at the higher end of the Shopify ecosystem is merchants don't want to give up the benefits of Shopify and the hosted experience and the checkout and so on, but they do want more flexibility in the front end. So there are are new products like Builder.io and Shogun and Nacelle and Nyla that are starting to allow merchants to build front ends that are separate from the back end. And that is – that's one of those pieces of technology that starts to move, and no one knows where, where, where that where that goes.
0: Is it oversimplifying it to say this is similar to what Elementor has done for WordPress, right? Or or any of the Elementor like Beaver Builder, or any of those competitors? It's it's more nuanced than
1: that, but conceptually, is that similar? That's not a bad analogy. It, it, it's not exact. No, it's it's really not a bad analogy at all because WordPress does have a front end that's very very tightly coupled with its back end, and those those builders let you get some separation between the two and build whatever you want on the front end that still keeps things consistent with the back end in such a way that the, the site still works so it's it's not it's not a bad uh, description at all the complicating factor around selling things and selling physical products specifically is that you still need the back end to do a lot of work all the order management and the hosting of the product information, the customer information, and so on. And so that the interaction between the front end and the back end is pretty gnarly, and it, it all comes together right at, at the point of checkout. So what would maybe be like a tactical
0: application of a headless instance that like is a big benefit for the brand itself? Like one thing, when you said Casper, I thought maybe, maybe the difference would be when you click to purchase a mattress or something, it takes you to a dynamic like personalization survey type of thing instead of just straight to the checkout. And it's like, let's actually get your mattress dialed in and let you find the right one for you or whatever. Like, I'm sure they're already doing this in some way, but maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to quantify this as a non-technical marketing guy. Like how does headless make that experience better either for the customer or the brand? Like what would be a,
1: a practical example? It's both visual and and performance. So, and and, and development, Really, if, if you have your own development team and they're looking at you and saying, just let me build on whatever frameworks we want to build on. Why are we stuck building on this specific liquid framework within this context, within this theme, like take the shackles off. So there's an element of that. And there's also performance. As you know, for larger stores, speed makes a huge difference. And every bit of speed makes a very large impact on revenue. We're about to walk into Black Friday, Cyber Monday coming up, and that is critical. So, speed, performance, the ability to integrate with new product uh, with new products and and partners, the design, like you said, the being able to build your own subscription companies have this a lot. Like if you want to build out your own subscription box, that that's really complicated to do on Shopify, right? There, there's a platform called Cratejoy back in the day was like taking off like crazy because they allowed that functionality that you could build your own box and then it would go into the backend properly so that the fulfillment knew this, this product specifically for James needs to include this number of SKUs in this, this, these variants, these sizes and so on. So that these are things that are hard to accomplish. It's an interesting topic. I wish I knew
0: more about it so we could go a little bit deeper, but I have to do some independent research and and figure it out because now I'm starting to think it's more like static sites almost where like you would have Jekyll as the front end and then you'd have some kind of like static CMS. I'm struggling to think of an example now, but you still, you you have your own CMS, the static site, the HTML kind of, and CSS versus your WordPress theme is much more flexible and you can kind of have a bespoke solution around that while still calling a CMS. It's just not WordPress. So maybe that's an oversimplification. I'll find a good example eventually. I'll learn it. I'm just, I'm hard... <laughs> that's it. It's
1: just in the e-commerce context. Like what does that mean? And I don't think we really know everything that it that it means just yet.
0: Well, that's why it's exciting, right? The exciting uh, future of e-commerce tech. Cool. So you mentioned Black Friday briefly. I think people would burn me at the stake if I don't mention it because it's top of mind now. I know typically, like other e-commerce brands, like this would be your Super Bowl. I don't know how different that might be this year. So part of the question I was going to ask is like how are you guys gearing up to help your merchants hit a new revenue goal or whatever? maybe that's a little bit less of a priority right now because of the transition, that's totally fine. So that's the one part, like, how are you preparing? And then what advice do you have for merchants as they prepare for what's supposed to be a volatile Q4? And we don't really know what to expect. Do you have anything from, from your seat that you want to share with the listeners?
1: We are expecting it to just be bigger, whatever you expect to be bigger than that. Because the the truth is, there is something ingrained in American culture that when the holidays come around, and I, I used to do it too, I buy everything online, but not really everything because I'm still heading out to the stores when I need to either something last minute. And a lot of people are not buying nearly as much online. And the fact that the physical ability to go out to physical stores will be greatly diminished and everyone just got real warmed up on the way to where they buy things online over the past few months – I think it's gonna be huge. So we are preparing on our end by being extremely cautious. With our legacy product, extreme caution. We have code freezes well, well in advance of the big weekend. Our job is to get out of the way and make sure we never hurt a merchant sales, right? That's like, for in the way we do deployments, in the way we're doing QA, in the risk that we're willing to take for new features, all of that goes toward reliability and safety. And it'll be the same for our new app. I mean, th- the truth is, we are we are expecting a lot of attention for when it launches, especially because it's going to be a few weeks before Black Friday and Cyber Monday, and we expect a big a big rush to get to get for people to get set up. So on our end, it's just extreme caution, and like the number one thing in our mind is do not get in the way of a sale. On the merchant side, is it's it's tricky because as a merchant, I would see the tendency toward maximizing revenue, but you have to balance that with shopper experience. And you also have to balance it with, you you don't want to acquire customers unprofitably, not to too high of a degree. If you have the resources, then yes, it makes sense to acquire as many customers as possible. And the actual profit from those customers is not that important for this season because you're acquiring actual customers that you can market to over the, the rest of the year. But if you don't have big resources, you need to be careful because you're in a you're in an environment that's extremely competitive and discount driven. And you can hurt your brand and you can hurt your bottom line by giving up too many discounts. And you can exhaust your inventory. You can exhaust your team by doing a lot of work. So generally speaking, I, I, would, I would try to make sure that you're not doing it in such a way that you're just basically increasing the speed on the treadmill. You do want to acquire customers. You want to look at the context of your company and how many resources you have. Are you just getting started? Is this is this holiday season meant to make a profit or is it to expand your customer base? So you really need to think about your position and what you're trying to accomplish before you lay out your strategy as opposed to just let's get as much revenue as possible. I think, I think that season is the
0: operative term this year more than any other. And, and the thing I keep hearing over and over again is if you historically have thought literally Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and that's the push, maybe this year is the year to think about it as the holiday season and think of it in terms of months, not days or weeks, right? Just because we don't know where shipping is going to be at, you know, consumer purchasing behaviors are all over the place. Some folks aren't buying as much, like you said, some folks ran into one-click checkout and they're just click happy, right? Like they're buying everything because it's like, sometimes I buy things. I don't realize that I bought it, you know, like I click for shop pay or something and it just happens. Right. And it's like, Oh, okay. I guess that's on the way to the house now, you know? So yeah, just it is going to be unpredictable, but I would just say, you know, start thinking about it now because technically like November 1st, all the way through the end of the year is the season. And so you got to kind of like build your strategy around that. So maybe well, I was actually thinking if you guys are targeting, drawing a line in the sand and saying, you know, maybe right before Black Friday, we're going to roll out this, this more tighter integration with Shopify. Like, is that enough time if somebody's starting from zero for these post-purchase offers to get set up and get rolling? Or is that maybe, I mean, I know that's probably the objective, but is that maybe a little bit too risky to try to get it turned around in, let's call it a couple weeks, two to four weeks before Black Friday itself? Like, is that too fast to, or too ambitious to try to incorporate post-purchase offers before this holiday?
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question. It's a very very big difference between our legacy software and the new one. The legacy software we would tell people just don't even attempt it anywhere near the holidays because you're replacing your entire checkout and you're tracking and you're in and your integrations and your payment processing and that's just too much risk. The beauty of this new product that works with the Shopify checkout is it doesn't have any of those risks, and so you can get up and running within, I mean, an hour is like an exaggeration. You don't need an hour. You would be in it in five minutes and you can be making your first offer literally within a few minutes. And you don't need to worry about all that risk. So, you know, yes, it's self-serving, but it's also true that there's plenty of time. You, you, can, you can get up and running very quickly. It doesn't have nearly the same risk profile as our checkout product from, you know, that we were running previously. So, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great step forward. And
0: you know I, I can't be happier for you and everything that's going on. I'm really excited for you. It's great to talk to you in any context, but I'm especially appreciative of you coming to share your insights around post-purchase offers and the future of e-commerce tech and and everything else today. So before I let you go, like where can folks go to learn more about you? And if you don't mention Bootstrap Web, then I certainly will. So <laughs> if you want to get that one out first, you can do everything else after that.
1: Yes. So James is talking about the podcast I do with my very good friend, Brian Castle called Bootstrapped Web. We call it the low light podcast. (laughs) We do not talk about just highlights and all the good things. We talk about all the struggles, everything we're learning, what we're up against, what we're facing in the coming week, what we've learned from it, painful things and also celebration. So that's called Bootstrapped Web. It's the Sports Center, not top ten of podcasts, <laughs> right? Like- yes, we. I don't know. I would. I couldn't do it any other way. I, I can't talk about just highlights. That I, th- I find that stuff boring. So on Twitter, I'm at Jordan Gall. That's kind of where I live in my spare time when I'm not taking care of my business, my wife, or my kids. And of course, business side. If you're a merchant, if you're an agency, we want to work with you. Go to carthook.com right now. It's just going to be a coming soon where you can sign up for the early access list and get some special deals and some special offers ahead of everybody else. So do
0: that and that's it. Awesome, well, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This was this was amazing and uh, we'll have to have you back sometime after the big launch and talk about how things are going and what you're seeing with with your new merchants and some of their success stories. So I'd love to have you back if you're open to it. I would love to, thanks very much. Hey everybody, this is James again. And before you go, I just wanted to invite you to join one of the coolest things I get to work on as director of marketing here at The Good. It's called the e-commerce insiders list, and it's a private version of this podcast feed that gets you access to tons of additional bonus content, like extra interviews, Q&A sessions, website teardowns, and anything else we can dream up. It doesn't cost you anything but your email address, and we promise to always respect your inbox. This is just our way of forming stronger relationships with our listeners and making sure that we produce content that is actually valuable to you and to your business. If you're interested, you can join the rest of the e-commerce insiders by going to thegood.com slash podcast and dropping your email into the form at the top of the page. We'll follow up with directions for how to access the private feed and you'll be off and running. Like I said, this is one of my favorite things that I get the opportunity to work on because it lets me interact directly with e-commerce founders and leaders just like you. If you're interested, I'd love to see your name pop up in my notifications. Until then, keep an eye out for the next episode of the e-commerce insight show and we'll talk to you soon.